and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at Jasper underscore CH on Twitter, and joining me this week, we've got... Uh, Morgan, I'm one of your regular Social Review editors. And I am A.M. Gitlitz, author of I Want to Believe, Pisazum, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, yeah, so as you said, uh, you're the author of... Um, uh the book we recently reviewed on the social review website uh morgan reviewed uh, if you haven't read it uh, go check it out it's a really good review and it sounds like a fascinating book and um sounds like a fascinating man and i am really excited to be talking about apocalypse communism in this episode of the podcast so uh let's just dive straight into it um andy for the uninitiated into what Basadism is which could well be quite a lot of people listening um could you just tell us a little bit about your book? Uh, sure. So, Posadism was the majority, uh, tro- the, the majority faction of tr- international Trotskyism in Latin America in the 50s and 60s. It was led by a guy named Jay Posadas, who was a uh, worker um, from Argentina. Uh, his parents were Italian immigrants. He was born in 1911. And he, uh, you know, rose the ranks through the international to become the leader of Latin American Trotskyism um, through the, uh, the 50s. And then in the 60s, he split off um, over disagreements with the European international about, uh, among other things, um, the, the necessity for nuclear war, uh, the resumption of World War III between the imperialist states and the workers' states. Um, and then in, in the 60s, as his international started to fall apart through disagreements with Che Guevara and, uh, and, and I mean, more disagreements with Fidel Castro and um, uh, growing repression against communism, uh, he started to lean into some of his more idiosyncratic and new agey ideas. And uh, the movement became a cult in the 70s, um, most famous for its interest in. Uh, optimism of the intervention of aliens uh, and also communication with dolphins Um, and he died in 1981 Uh, so Posadism died uh, you know or or faded away into obscurity around this time Uh, but the a large part of my book is about how it's come back in the form of memes and futurism and cosmism and things that are young socialists are interested in today and often they use Posadas as an as an avatar for those interests um, although they have less interest in the actual political history of Posadism so I wanted to present a book that uh, uh, shows both sides of it oh, I, well, I obviously think that's a very interesting topic but how did you kind of what's your background how did you find yourself in a position of sitting down and thinking right I'm going to write the definitive biography of of Posadas well I've written about um political countercultures and radical politics for a number of years um for the the new inquiry and uh vice and you know basically covering whatever interesting things that I find in in subculture and Posadism always interested me because as a as like a, one of the weirder communist movements, or at least it was known that way. Um, and uh, But there wasn't much information about it. Um, there wasn't a lot of his texts translated or available online throughout the 10s. Uh, but that started to change in the 
the 2010s, um, when people like David Broder uh, started uh, putting some of that stuff online. And then um, in the mid-2010s, uh, mid with uh, the emergence of the fully automated luxury communism meme, um, people started to talk about Posadas quite a bit to the point where searching the name Posadas actually uh, was more common than searching most of his other Trotskyist rival rivals, and at times even Trotsky. So it seemed like the time was right to, to do something with Posadas. Um, a friend and I were, were thinking about writing a sci-fi story, uh, and uh, we worked on doing a presentation together at, at the Left Forum, which is like a major, you know, um, uh, leftist forum in New York. And uh, in the course of researching for this sci-fi story, I was just more interested in the actual history, and I couldn't find much information about it in English, um, but I could tell it was out there. And uh, so I gave a presentation sort of interpreting what little I understood about Posadism um, related to uh, like sci-fi movies and pop culture uh, references to aliens. And uh, one of the people uh, in the audience for the panel was uh, Mackenzie Wark, and she said, hey, this is a really interesting topic. I think a lot of people would be interested in a, in a book about this. And um, that was uh, three years ago, and I've been, uh, you know, for two years I was uh, pitching the book and traveling to archives. There are archives with this stuff in, in uh, Amsterdam, um, London, uh, in California. There's a major Trotskyist archive, and I also went to South America to uh, Buenos Aires as the major leftist archive down there, um, and I interviewed ex-members of the Posadas movement, I interviewed one current member, and there's not very many, um, and spent a lot of time going through those documents and piecing together the history, uh, but also learning the history of Trotskyism in general, because I'm not a Trotskyist myself, so I, I had a lot of work to do, um, and I think the book reflects that I was kind of an outsider to the subject. Um, and, and, and hopefully that's a, a good way into understanding the history of revolutionary socialism for a lot of people previously uninitiated. I think you might have just answered our next question on um, how did you research the book? <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say, how did, you, how did you find the kind of uh, Posadists and ex-Posadists you interviewed? Like not, I mean, how did you find them directly, but also how, how were they? Like what, were, what was that like as a cohort of interviewees? So the... The Posadists I talked to, both uh, ex and current, um, you know, for the most part, they were they were very uh, kind. Um, but you know, the the real variation was how forthcoming they were. Uh, Luciano Dandaro is a uh, a guy who was part of the Italian section in the '60s, and he was a huge help. He he told me quite a bit about the book. Um, actually, it was an interview between him and the leftist train spotters community um, over email that really kick-started the book because he talked about what it was like in the movement, um, how, how difficult life was, how much work there was, and also um, some strange things about Posadas that nobody had researched yet. Like, for example, he had a daughter in the, the mid-70s who um, he considered like the messianic heir, like the star child of the movement. So this is something I really wanted to know more about. Um, so talking to him was great. I talked to Guillermo Amira, who p passed away last year. He was one of the founders of the Posadas movement. 
and he, um, you know, uh, he was one of the the true intellectuals and like kind of militant heroes of the movement, and he continued to be uh, an important intellectual um, after his time in the movement. Uh, you know, he, he's a name that almost every Mexican leftist knows of. He, he's Argentinian, but he, he writes a lot in Mexico about Latin American politics. Um, Adolfo Gili was another person that I talked to very briefly over email. He was very not forthcoming. Uh, again, this is a very important Mexican intellectual who was a founder of the Posadist movement. Uh, he spent a lot of time in, in prison um, for his activities with the Posadists, and he was, you know, in Cuba, like right after the revolution, during the Missile Crisis and all that stuff. Uh, he didn't want to talk too much about his time in the movement. So I think some people are uh, a little bit uh, maybe ashamed or at least wary of the kinds of questions that they'll be asked uh, of people who aren't doing serious research, or they might just not want to talk about it because they were, they were essentially part of a cult, uh, and may, maybe they're not so proud of those um, of that time uh, or of that contribution. In um, South America, I, try, I tried really hard to talk to Posadas' son, who I think is the, uh, the current leader of the Posadas International, at least in Latin America. He did not want to talk to me. Um, they have a, a, an office in Buenos Aires, and they sort of slammed the door in my face. They just told me to go to the archive. Uh, but in Montevideo, I went to the, the current Posadists' uh, office, and uh, the guy there talked to me for, for a few hours. Um, he didn't go into too much specifics, uh, but he, he really wanted to talk about the politics and a little bit about the history of the movement and, uh, you know, show me around. Um, and I just chalk that up to uh, Uruguayans being incredibly uh, welcoming people. He, I, I think he, he knew that he shouldn't have talked to me as much as he did, but uh, he couldn't resist. Um, and I, in, in uh, Argentina, I was also able to talk to one of the uh, one of the Posadists from the Cordobin um, uh, auto workers. Uh, they had a faction of auto workers in the, the 50s and 60s in Cordoba and Argentina, and they were a very important faction in pushing the, um, you know, the, the, the demands that would become the Cordobazo, the, these, like, riots against the anti-communist dictatorship in the late 60s. Uh, so he was really able to uh, tell me what it was like uh, as a worker, uh, as, like, a, you know, a serious working-class faction uh, or working-class cadre in the Posadas movement, which is really valuable, too, because people don't think of them as a working-class movement because they, they stopped being one, essentially, in the, the late 60s. One of the things I was interested in was, I think I've seen you talking somewhere about debunking the idea that uh, Posadas turned to kind of intense, the space communism and the more, as you said, the more idiosyncratic stuff after being tortured. Could you talk about is the story behind that? As far as I can tell, there, there's really nothing to that story. Um, Posadas was, uh, he was arrested in a, in a raid in 1968 in Montevideo. But I have a pretty detailed uh, story uh, that he wrote of, of what that arrest was like. And he claims to have been treated pretty well. Um, the, the Really, the major repression against uh, the the Posadists and communists in general in Latin America um, occurred in the 70s 
Um, and there were a lot of Posadas tortured and killed in the 70s, uh, but at that point, Posadas was in exile in Rome. Um, in, the, in the 60s, they, they saw a lot of repression in, in Mexico, Cuba, and Brazil, um, and in Argentina as well, but, but Posadas, as far as I can tell, steered clear of all of that stuff. So if he was uh, tortured at some point, it's not something he ever talked about. It's not something anyone who is part of the movement um, believes to have happened. Like, you know, mostly they just tell me that, you know, that did not happen. You know, people who knew him and had to listen to him for hours and hours and hours, they, they don't think that happened. So as far as I can tell, that is a false rumor that um, one person was spreading with some confidence, but uh, can't really back it up. Um, that said, I do think Posadas had some, uh, you know, some kind of manic qualities. You know, he didn't sleep very much. He didn't eat very much. He had some weird obsessions with, uh, um, you know, sexual abstinence, with childbirth and child rearing. Um, he was very prone to new age ideas. And at times in the book, I pathologize that a bit, uh, probably more than I should have. Um, but uh, I, I don't think it's wrong to say he was... Uh, he was kind of crazy, but I don't think he was driven crazy by torture. That's, um, I don't think that's backed up at all. What, what is it that you think, I mean, you've kind of maybe answered it a little bit there, but what do you think did cause him to lean into the things that are now kind of popularly associated with Pesadism on the internet? So the dolphins and the aliens, basically. So the aliens came from a guy named Dante Minizzoli, who was another important, um, Posadist, uh, a founder of the movement uh, from Argentina. Um, the, the, their first group was called the Grupo Cuarta, Cuarta Internacional, the Fourth International Group. They were found in uh, Buenos Aires around 1946, and in, in 1947 was when UFOs really became this international pop cultural phenomenon with uh, the Kenneth Arnold's sightings of flying saucers in uh, in the United States and the Roswell incident. So these ended up in tabloids around the world. And Dante Minizzoli, who was a, a fan of uh, cosmist literature and science fiction from his youth, um, told this emerging Trotskyist group that, you know, this is something that we ought to talk about um, to, to analyze as a, as, a, as a cadre, because if aliens are visiting us, this is an important geopolitical moment. At the time, he was told to not talk about that uh, that they had more important things to do, um, specifically their relation to the Peronist workers' movement and to the, the re-emerging Fourth International. They are trying to be recognized as the, the Argentinian section, and eventually they were. So uh, decades later, in uh, the late 60s, um, they had established themselves as an international movement, and they believed themselves to be you know, the vanguard of world revolution in a way, in the, the Marxist-Leninist uh, tradition. At this point, Minizzoli said, well, now is the right time to finally talk about the aliens. He was pushing this subject at a World Congress in 1967, and uh, some people there agreed with him. Um, other people, like uh, Elmira and, and uh, I assume Gilly, did not uh, think this was a, uh, a valid topic of discussion. And Posadas weighed in um, with a speech that uh, became uh, published as the Flying Saucers essay that everybody knows Pesadism for today, um, it was more to settle this debate 
than to uh, make the idea central to the movement. Um, and his position was that aliens do exist, UFOs are extraterrestrial in origin, and if we can contact them, we ought to because they are more advanced than, than we are and we can learn a lot from them. However, it's not really worth spending too much time speculating about who they are or what they are um, because we have everything on Earth that we need right now to, to reach the next level and perhaps they'll want to um, they'll be more keen to contact us when we reach the next level. And that was the last he ever wrote about it publicly. He, he was a believer in aliens, uh, but it, it wasn't uh, you know, a central part of, of the movement, like many believe. Um, the dolphins come much later in uh, 1980, uh, just right before his death, he came across the work of Igor Tcharkovsky, who's a, a dissident Russian New Age midwife who was doing experiments in the Black Sea with uh, water birthing. He was one of the, the pioneers of the water birthing technique, and he believed that dolphins were natural midwives who would come to his experiments to assist in the childbirthing process. And uh, if they do this, the children will be born with superhuman abilities. So Posadas, I think, saw this as, uh, first of all, he, he mistook Tchaikovsky for a Soviet scientist. Um, he thought that this was probably, a, a you know, a, a, the, the Soviets were doing these experiments. Um, and second, he he saw that as a, this as a symbol of this unity between humans, nature, the cosmos, animals, this uh, incredibly radical unity that he first foresaw communism as fulfilling in a very short period of time. Um, so the, the dolphin became this uh, the symbol of that radical unity in his mind. Uh, but again, he, he only wrote about it uh, pretty briefly, but he, he was uh, somewhat obsessed with it in his last years. So when when you were writing, did you have any kind of, did you have any moments where you found like, the, a key source or a great anecdote or a kind of like perfect piece of piece of sourcing and thought yeah fuck yes like this is this is all falling into place or was it a more I don't know smooth uh, approach oh yeah that happens all the time um, like I remember uh, going to the archives in Amsterdam and uh, you know all, all of the documents are Posadas' transcribed speeches, but it was everything, you know, everything he said uh, publicly to his comrades, you know, if he, he called he called the people living in his villa outside Rome into a meeting, and every word would be transcribed. Um, so, uh, things that uh, I had read about in this interview with Luciano Dondaro uh, over email, um, like, for example, this sex scandal in the mid-70s, where he purged the intellectual core of the movement and stuff with his uh, kind of star child daughter following that. Um, there was no information about that online, but I found all the documents describing it. And I, I also found in the um, archives at the Senate House in, in London this, these really incredible documents detailing his last days of life, um, of him essentially dying in a hospital. Uh, and, and those were very well kept notes and I was able to really sort of watch him die and watch his thought pr process in his last days and, and that was really incredible um, on top of that there were a couple of uh, biographies uh, or autobiographies 
that um, provided a lot of detail, especially Guillermo Almira's Militante Critico, where he, he talks about um, meeting Posadas for the first time um, and at the secret meeting in Buenos Aires and what a you know charismatic and strange and vulgar figure he was. Um, and uh, I found a, a great uh, autobiography of Livio Maitan, who was the, uh, the, the secretary of the Italian uh, Fourth International when the Posadists split. Um, and so they had like a, he was really at the center of the feud between the historical Fourth International and, the, and Posadas. Um, and he had some incredible details about Posadas as well. I think uh, Posadas actually kind of steals the show in that book, which is kind of sad. Um, uh, but yeah, like, uh, you know, the, the more I researched, the more, you know, great details came out, including um, e even though Posadas was in exile, uh, Juan Perón in the 70s blamed him for this guerrilla operation that sort of sets uh, Argentina on the path towards a uh, right-wing dictatorship. And uh, it was really incredible to research, like, how Perón ended up blaming Posadas, what he was trying to do, um, sort of the, the the secret machinations behind the scenes um, that ended up costing a lot of Posadists their, their lives, although they were already a marginal group at that point in Argentina. Uh, so I, I think the book has a lot of really rich and strange and interesting stories like that. Um, so you kind of talk quite very interestingly and thoroughly about the, the life of Posadas. Um, what about the the strange afterlife of Posadism on the internet? Like, what's, what's your hot take on that? Um, so, like I said earlier, Posadas... Posadas really sort of came back into popularity in 2016 um, when, as a result of, I think, uh, the election in the United States and the, the Brexit referendum um, and, and sort of these, uh, these bizarre political situations around the world, people online started to uh, seek out strange and extravagant and cartoonish um, radical figures from history to to express the strangeness of the moment or, or to mock it in, in some ways. Um, so of course there was a lot of that around uh, Nazism um, of like esoteric fascist you know imagery popping up uh, but there's also a lot of that around socialism as well around the Sanders campaign <clears throat> or like, you know, inspired by the Sanders campaign and, and Corbyn. Uh, and and Posadas was, was just like one of the figures uh, who emerged um, when, when people were making memes about like the history of socialism or the history of Trotskyism. Um, but I think he really took off because people discovered that in this combination of um, catastrophism, this belief that there needed to be a nuclear war uh, for socialism to be established, uh, but also this extreme optimism that you know socialism and communism would absolutely be established despite there being this nuclear war, and combining that with like really off the wall new age imagery like the aliens and the dolphins, um, it really resonated with people in a way that, uh, of course, was mostly ironic. Uh, people weren't actually um, reading him and and looking to to replicate uh, his beliefs, um, but it wasn't entirely ironic. So historically, 
Posadas was always this scapegoat, uh, or not scapegoat's not the right word, this comic relief for, you know, other Trotskyists to say, like, well, we're not the crazy ones. Look at Posadas. That's, like, the really crazy guy. Um, or anti-communists to just say, like, you know, Trotskyism in general is uh, is ridiculous. Look at this one guy, Posadas. Uh, this is what Castro actually did. Um, he denounced Trotskyism in general in the 60s, uh, but Posadas specifically. Uh, but this kind of um, representation of Posadas is not entirely mocking. In fact, I think the young people really uh, admire the strangeness of Posadism, uh, the aliens and the, and the dolphin stuff. I think the memes uh, celebrate that. Um, but what they're mocking is the fact that he was a committed revolutionary socialist leader. I think that is what people really find um, strange. Uh, and I wanted to to really look into that tension and the fact that people are, you know, coming into believing that uh, the only hope for humanity is socialism or communism, uh, but also they think that the the historical movement to establish that uh, revolutionary socialism in general um, is a, a failure and a joke. So if, if one were looking to look for, kind of expand from Posadism and look for other examples of kind of Fortean socialism around that emerged in 2016, where where might we look? Or if, I don't know if there is any. Well, a lot of people look to the Russian cosmists and the, the bio-cosmist immortalists. These were uh, a faction, faction of the Bolsheviks and, and Russian socialism in general um, that, uh, you know, believed that for communism to really uh, have succeeded, we will need to travel through space and, and meet aliens and also extend our lifespans and res resurrect the dead. Um, stuff that uh, futurists continued to talk about into the 60s and still talk about today. Uh, but um, they, they had like a, you know, Marxist uh, spin on it. And, and the primary figure associated with them is... Alexander Bogdanov, and I go a lot uh, into the book about his debates with Lenin and how that shaped the course of the Bolshevik party. Um, the, the the cosmists were largely suppressed and, uh, you know, had to give up or were sent to gulags um, in the early formation of the Soviet state, but their ideas uh, persisted, especially uh, with Sergei Korolev, um, who was, you know, taken out of the gulags in the during the World War II to uh, develop uh, missile technology, and eventually, after the war, he was able to sort of sneak in um, his true ambition, which was to launch uh, a satellite and send uh, men into space um, in the the late fifties. So th there was a direct lineage between this uh, this Soviet cosmism and uh, the space race. I actually have a question sort of uh, building off of some of the things that you just said. Um, so um, you, you talked there about uh, similar um, similar movements and people who uh, have had, who, who kind of create these, these sort of links between um, c cosmic content as it were, and politics. And, and uh, I think at first hand, a, a lot of people who, will like look at the book and and hear this podcast about it may think like god what what on earth is this uh talking to dolphins apocalypse communism you know they may think like surely this is just very silly but you you 
surely you 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 don't think that because you've written the book on it um and you've talked to with with great length and passion about um Poseidus's life um so when when you came to writing the book um was it a challenge at all were there any part of you thinking like oh this is all very absurd and i'm going to treat it as absurd or, or from the beginning were you thinking like actually i want to try and take this seriously and, and engage with it critically or did that tension never really come into your thinking when writing it and thinking about Posadas? well Posadism was not absurd it uh it it represents the the history of revolutionary socialism um sure from like a sort of minor minoritarian point of view uh they they weren't ever a a mass movement um although they had mass influence at moments uh, but I think that's part of the history of socialism in general and the fact that um, so many Posadist militants uh, were tortured and died uh, for what they believe in, um, for, for, you know, trying to uh, empower workers and um, prevent the kind of catastrophic dictatorships and, uh, and vile regimes that came after them is not absurd to me. It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, Although the, you know, I think the absurd aspects that were a bit harder to, to write about and apparently comparing um, what, you know, what the, that militancy of the 50s and 60s uh, to groups like, for example, the Men in Red, who were a satirical UFO, communist UFO group in Italy in the, in the 90s, or the, like the Spock block of, uh, you know the this anti-globalization anarchist block who dressed up like uh, Star Trek characters. Um, it, it felt a little bit absurd to put one against the other, um, but I think that kind of satirical or ironic playing with uh, with history is is not entirely um, ironic. You know, I think there's something about it that represents, uh, you know, first of all, an, an attempt to uh, experiment with the failures of the past to see what went wrong um, in a way that's not entirely mocking. Um, and, and also it, it, it pre presents a, um, a, a, a kind of revolutionary lineage from the early Bolsheviks, the cosmists, who had these kind of, who were experimenting with these ideas through the success uh, or the uh, the potency of the revolutionary workers movement in the at the end of World War One, um, and it's it's you know it's various failures after World War Two, and it's sort of reemergence um, in the anti globalization movement, and then the uh, you know the occupy and take the squares movements, and, and finally um, Black Lives Matter and these um, remarkable struggles around the world last year, you know, in, in Latin America and in, uh, in the Middle East and, you know, dozens of countries last year, I think that there is a, a lineage, and even, even though it's not purely ideological, even though it's not always coherent, um, and I think uh, looking at marginal groups and figures uh, in a serious way uh, can help provide some um, explanation about the dynamics uh, of where uh, these ideas come from and what move people to act. Mm. Um, and uh, building building off on that again, do do you think there's anything 
sort of inherent in socialism and communism, which has led to um, uh, different individuals and different groups um, across history uh, linking their politics with sort of cosmism and um, uh, those those sort of those sort of concepts. Like the the you talking about the historical lineage of these ideas is really fascinating. So do you think do you think there's something in socialism communism which which leads people to that as a sort of like maybe natural extension or or not? Well, I don't think it's natural. You know, I, you can find um, a number of socialist tendencies and uh, institutions that reject that kind of thinking whole cloth. And I, I certainly don't think for socialism to be successful, there needs to be a space program or something like that. Um, but I do think uh, that socialism is larger than just creating an economic system um, uh, of just governance, um, of uh, you know managing the economy in a more sane or, or just way. I, I think it, it really does go to the roots of what it means to be human um, at this point in history of, uh, of, of the masses, the working class, taking back the world uh, from the logic of capital, which uh, is the, the creation, uh, which is a, you know, the struggle of dead labor, of objects, of machinery uh, against living labor, the people who actually have to, to work and live. Um, so th these are this is where Marxism and, and socialism become a very philosophical and existential question, uh, and, and I think uh, you know those questions don't have to lead to something like cosmism or, or something like the uh, radical unity of, of humans and, and animals and uh, objects or even nature. You know you don't have to have an ecological socialism, um, uh, but uh, I think the concept of unity that um, Posadas had, which was unity between humans, nature, animals, and the cosmos, uh, is something that should be uh, strived for, that uh, breaking down the, the barriers between classes and nations um, is one level of breaking down the classes uh, of, of, of humans and uh, the, the surrounding environments, including nature and the cosmos. Um, and these play at the heart of the, these, these deep uh, you know, mystical questions of what it means to be humans looking at the stars, for example, or wondering about our meeting, our place in the universe. And uh, uh, Posada sees these things as these, you know, existential uh, questions um, that can't be solved until we come together and create communism. And then he, he, he sees it as being kind of obvious that we will travel into space and, and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm really interested in what you said about, you know, socialism being more than just how we economically organize our societies and what have you, and it being about kind of greater unity and, but also a very, perhaps I'm misinterpreting you, but like it's, it's a, it's something to do with kind of internal life and imagination and how we conceive of, yeah, ourselves in relation to everything as opposed to just purely economic. Um, this is kind of a weird segue question, but definitely on the on the British left, I don't know about in the in the States, um, the kind of the ideas of, of Mark Fisher and relating to hauntology and um, the space taken up by futures that may or may not have come to pass or didn't come to pass, um, and the space taken up by the weird and the eerie and all these things. Do you see do you see this on the the American left as well? And do you think it's kind of an encouraging part of 
Okay. And more imaginative socialism. Uh, yeah, I don't see it so much besides, like I said, in, in memes. And I think a lot of people get radicalized through memes. So I think, you know, if we have a, a vibrant socialist movement in a few years, um, I think everybody uh, under a certain age will know who Posadism is and probably have an opinion on it. Uh, um, maybe that's being too optimistic for my career, at least. But uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, the the popularity of some of these science fiction um, inspired texts from Mark Fisher or Frederick Jameson, uh, or you know, a lot of people reading Ursula K. Le Guin and Kim Stanley Robinson, um, you know, I I think that that comes from a sense that uh, of real powerlessness of the the idea that the options that we're presented with that are are possible um, are so far from the kind of lives we'd like to live that we don't even know what kind of lives we'd like to live so there's a, a retreat into narrative in a number of ways you know one way that can happen is through the belief in whatever conspiracy theory resonates with you the most QAnon or uh, pandemic or, uh, you know, uh, lizard people running the world or whatever. Another way could be just like purely trying to be uh, a rational explainer of the world through, um, like the more economic or mechanistic aspects of Marxism, uh, or some other theory. Uh, and then another might be more imaginative, um, uh, perhaps utopian, perhaps just speculative, about what life could be like or, uh, or, or even questions in consensus reality about what is, uh, what is normal, you know, um, what, is, uh, what, what are we lacking in our perception that, for example, there is no explanation for the UFOs uh, that have been now uh, revealed to have been captured on, on film um, by the, the Pentagon. Uh, you know, we don't like the government doesn't have any explanation for this. We certainly don't either. Maybe there's more to reality than just this purely categorical scientific understanding of everything that that the world is in such a dead, disenchanted place that we've been led to believe in, in modernity, that there is more to be uncovered and, and more to be done. And perhaps that indicates uh, new ways of living. So one thing I, I try to do in the book is compare the um, the idealism of revolutionary socialists to that of ufologists, and you know this isn't totally a a, a charitable comparison. I, I don't know if either of them really want to be compared with one another, but I think in the concept of revolution as this thing that you know we can't really foresee right now, but we have total faith in it, and from there we kind of scientifically work backwards and, and make an argument for how revolution uh, will and must occur and uh, first contact with aliens, which, you know, again, this is something people just, you know, in their core they believe in, and from that belief they work backwards as, as scientists and say, well, you can, you can extrapolate from these experiences with UFOs that first contact is coming. Um, I, I think it's the same process, and it represents something core to... Um, how we create our worldviews, which is that what we believe in, what we choose to believe in or um, are led to believe, uh, really shapes the kind of reality we attempt to create through our actions. Uh, 
And so this is why I call the book I Want to Believe. This is why I see this resonance with that slogan from the X-Files and with revolutionary socialism is that, um, first of all, that believing in something will make you more likely to experience it. So if everybody, you know, at a, uh, at a demonstration uh, prefers to riot instead of just being kicked off the streets at the right time, um, then that's more likely to open up this revolutionary rupture, at least in that moment. Uh, and then also in paranormal phenomenon, if you believe in UFOs, if you believe in ghosts or what have you, you're more likely to, to, to uh, experience those things. Um, but it's not just about belief, it's about wanting to believe. Um, so um, th it, that implies that there, there's a, a difficulty there. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of the irony comes from, is that people want to believe that a better world is possible, that a better future is possible, but that seems like a paranormal phenomena in itself, because it's so hard to imagine um, the, the kind of revolution occurring that you know millions of workers in the, the time of Posadas uh, believed full-heartedly uh, full with complete faith would occur in their lifetimes. Um, we don't generally, as we kind of alluded to in the in the introduction, we don't generally have anyone on this podcast who isn't uh, absolutely toiling in the bowels of the UK Labour Party. Um, so we just thought we would uh, use the opportunity to ask kind of you to give us some impressions or whatever you want to say about um, uh, the state of American politics and how how you're feeling from as well how you're feeling about the US left. Well, I, I think it's too early to say what's going to come after the uh, the feat of Bernie Sanders. I, I think it's pretty clear that the, the Democratic Party, um, whatever little goodwill they had with the emerging uh, uh, kind of Democratic Socialist, um, you know, I don't want to say consensus, but, you know, the large percentage of young people who have any interest in politics, you know, were in favor of Bernie Sanders um, more than any other politician. Uh, and I think the Democratic Party has lost these people uh, probably forever. And like, you know, for the last five years, as, as Sanders became kind of a phenomena, um, people from the revolutionary tradition, Trotskyists, were, were constantly warning people that there was no future for socialism in the Democratic Party, that this was a, uh, their mission was counter-revolutionary, reactionary, to uh, defend the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie in this country, even if it meant uh, keeping people like Donald Trump in power. And I think that's totally proven to be accurate. Um, so the question is, is all that energy and enthusiasm that people put into the Sanders campaign, all that hope that Sanders could do something good for the country, can that be translated into something else? Uh, and can it merge with the people, you know, the, I think the far more people, uh, the, the majority of the country who really don't see any hope in any political representation um, and uh, are just completely cynical about the, 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 the franchise of America, the American nation state in general, you know, this is like the people who don't vote, who can't be, or aren't interested in politics. And, you know, maybe if you talk to them for a few minutes, they would, they would likely say that, you know, Medi Medicare for all is a, a pretty good idea, although they might have some reactionary views in other ways. Um, I think the, the future is, is with 
these uh, depoliticized people uh, and and people who um, have 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 experienced the limits of representative democracy in the United States uh, may be working together in some way, uh, potentially in the midst of a uh, a deepening crisis, uh, economic and ideological in the United States, which will you know is not going to get better anytime soon. I assume you'll put the, the link in the show notes, but uh, yeah, you can get this book from Pluto Press uh, with code Posadas20. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd really appreciate people picking up the book. Hello, and welcome to another segment of this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. Uh, the first of... Um, many segments don't know how long it's going to run depends on uh external political circumstances but we're going to be talking about um talking to different people social review writers editors contributors podcasters um about their lives in lockdown what they've been up to how they've been feeling or that kind of thing um and today i'm delighted to be joined by kirsten cartelli who you previously heard um on the episode about the irish general election um well, that was a while ago um <laughs> that's happened since then yeah um thank you for coming on thank you for having me um so do you just want to share a little bit about what you've been up to with regards to your work that we're going to be talking about today with uh food banks and baby banks yeah it um it started pretty quickly um uh, before lockdown um mm. A few of us had a general sense that things were going to be bad. Yeah. Um, I live in uh, Birmingham. I live on uh-huh. the outskirts of Birmingham in a kind of what would be classed as a kind of a traditional labour heartlands post-industrial um, seat. And there's a lot of poverty here. Um, and so and health inequality as well in general. So we already struggle with that. So we knew that COVID would um, kind of render visible the kind of invisible um, inequalities that uh, we live with in in Mm. our seat. My background is as a Labour Party campaign organiser and being an organiser, you have these skills to mobilise people really, really quickly. Mm. Um, And that's just what we did. Uh, Myself and two councillors, I think in one of the first weeks of March, went, right, what are we doing about this? And we got a, we launched kind of like uh, a... Uh, provisional food bank hub in my flat and um yeah and just put an email out to our 800 labor party members and said we're doing um low distance low distance um collections um on my doorstep just give me a text when you're outside and very limited contact Mm. um that built quite quickly but i'm also a student and um i was aware that 30,000 students would be leaving Birmingham quite quickly and not not likely to come back. And this was before any of the lockdown. Mm. And I thought that, well, these are 30,000 students that have food in their houses and probably won't return to it. Mm. So I actually, through um, the mutual aid um, kind of Facebook groups that are popping up, I found other students and we set up a um Celio community response which was uh, a kind of a community response to helping people through food insecurity um during covid and it's been amazing it's like 1600 people strong um and um where there's 
it's still going to this day. Um, a lot of people are balancing dissertations with helping feeding the community, and mm. it's been really inspiring to see. Mm. And that was going to be my next question. Actually, it was going to be how how did you source all the food? So the way that you sourced or at least a lot of the food was through the students and realizing that. Yeah, it was yeah. a really quick um, turnaround because that is a, we knew there was going to be a date where people wouldn't be able to help because they wouldn't be local anymore. Mm. Um, and that was fast approaching. So we basically just did a massive drive to collect food. Mm. And we initially held the collection hub in a halls that had completely emptied out mm. and in the common room. And that became a food bank. Mm. Um, and it, it was just, it was amazing how fast. But then at mm. the same time, those students, that supply de- depletes. And meanwhile, people are losing their jobs um, really quickly. And the demand is, has increased since from when we started. Mm. So it's, it's been a, um, a bit of a mission working with a lot of um, uh, businesses that are able to donate some stock. Um, so big supermarkets, um, which has been great and mm. other kind of community organizations, a lot of putting people in touch with people who have chickens. Um, mm. so a bit, a bit like rogue, some of the stuff and then some stuff bit, a, a bit more corporate. Um, mm. but it, it's been incredible to see, um, people who weren't previously politicized, um, realize how political food insecurity is i think a lot of people approach 100 food banks from a kind of a, a lot of faith groups actually approach food mm. banks from a kind of um a charity perspective and actually it's inherently political um and to see people use the language of solidarity the language of that i believe is the labor party and, and socialism um in this perspective has has been kind of really encouraging, especially after the general election when, mm. in particular, I know Labour Party members who maybe campaigned in 2017 or campaigned for the first time in 2019 went, oh, my activism didn't work. I'm going to give up on that. Mm. And people who've said that to me turn around and being becoming incredible activists during this has been, mm. uh, I think, a light amongst this darkness. Mm. And what you said about faith groups as well, certainly from my experience as well, the... I've been sort of semi-involved in different faith groups throughout much of my life. And, and yeah, it has always sort of been seen as a charitable endeavor. And I, I agree with you that it, if, if this crisis is doing anything, it, it is rebalancing politics onto a spectrum of bodies and well, it's, the Tories life want and death this, as well. The Tories want, it makes sense for their arguments that it stay a charity and yeah. just a thing that nice people who can afford to do. Mm. Um, I use nice quote, like in inverted commas, but <laughs> like it's, it, they want this to be that charities do all the work that the state doesn't have to do. That's convenient to them. So mm. it's really important for people involved in those groups to remind people that actually the reason why people have to do this and take time to organize this and uh this stuff is because the state is failing citizens in this way and that needs to stay alive during all these discussions because this didn't happen obviously covid has been a, a horrific um crisis that um it was difficult to foresee beyond november 2019 just uh, december 2019 but mm. actually like we knew this was coming and there was a choice not to act fast enough 
so to protect the economy um and in in the end we've ended up damaging our economy more um so it's important to keep this political narrative alive and i am a little bit reluctant to embrace the oh don't politicize it like don't capitalize it for political gain mm. like i it's it is political they chose not to 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 do tests they chose yeah. all their action those are political decisions you're right and um on the on the, on the demand points you said demand has been increasing what 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 is what is the demand been like like on so, the ground how um, how how much food are you giving away so some days um the food bank that is being run um by uh well so we support a, a kind of a bigger organization at the moment mm. so it, it works better to kind of team people up together and you can cover more ground so two councillors um councillor alex aiken and councillor ollie armstrong in birmingham have been really central to this but and they help facilitate the operation but we can get like 500 calls in a day no problem Gosh. um yeah yeah, it's like, it's been staggering. And what has been, I've, I noticed a kind of quieter, um, but more serious demand within mothers. Because mm. when people were stockpiling, um, if you are a mother, a single mother, especially, um, who has, uh, say three kids and, um, you're living in poverty, uh, you cannot afford to stockpile. Like yeah. you just can't. Universal credit does not allow you to stockpile. Um, so there, it, I was getting calls from mothers who, um, hadn't got baby formula for their babies, newborn babies didn't have mm. it. And even if they did have the money to buy it, they could not buy it because people had stockpiled, yeah. didn't have nappies. Um, so I saw that demand and I kind of, <laughs> I, I, knew it needed to be filled so we've been doing um baby bank collection stuff as well mm. um and and it's been it's been great it's actually been really fantastic to see the response from people mm. and um it's been amazing but also devastating like um you forget that people are fleeing domestic violence at this time mm. and how difficult it is to furnish a temporary accommodation when all the shops are shut so mm. it, it has been the challenges that would be challenging in normal times have become a lot more difficult um in this context mm. and in ter in terms of that that demand and, and who who you're giving away the food to as well have you found that it is sort of similar to i don't want to say normal times but as in life pre-covid where um it's disproportionately people who are in uh underprivileged um uh, you know, low-income households, living in poverty, that kind of thing. Or have you found have you found at all that it's cutting across class lines at all in terms of who needs this food, in terms of who's losing their jobs, or is it is it sort of similar in that sense to how how food banks and paper banks operated pre-COVID? So it was the the reason why the student stuff started up so quickly was because I knew that the people who ran Safe uh, Trussell Trust food banks, which are a mm. phenomenal organisation, um, are predominantly in the high risk category. Mm. Um, and so they, a lot of um, food banks will work with the Trussell Trust, had to 
wrap up pretty quickly. So the, it was really important to get quote unquote low risk people active and involved to kind of fill that gap. Mm. Um, so we are supporting the people that were already attending food banks, which when an area where I live, um, is really high. That demand's mm. always been high and increasingly in build, um, building. But I think it's also exposed, um, how fragile, uh, uh, jobs are. Um, the insecurity of work, because you're right. Um, there's a lot of people who I'm pretty sure six months ago would never have thought they'd be using a food bank. And Mm. there's, um, also I, what I think has been interesting about it is that it's kind of destigmatized, um, accessing food bank support, accessing welfare support. A lot more people, millions of more people are mm. signing up to universal credit. So I'm, I'm really hoping because in, ironically, in areas like mine where the um, welfare support is pretty high, uh, there's a lot of stigma about use, accessing welfare support. Mm. And I'm really hoping that that language about um, accessing state support changes and yeah. from scroungers to actually you're entitled to this and everyone is entitled to this and everyone should be fed and um, have safe, um, warm housing. Mm. So, yeah, there are people who I think probably would never expect to find themselves contacting people like me um, and I completely welcome them and mm. anyone who needs it. But there's also people who can afford it but can't get out of the house. So we help with the kind of accessibility stuff as mm. well, which has been great. Mm. Yeah, I have a very vivid memory of um, a sort of school assembly in like 2011 of some uh, people who ran a local food bank coming to give an assembly. And this was in uh, this was in Winchester where, by and large, everyone is very nice and middle class and content and happy. And then there's a... Um, the small portion of us who are less so, um, and they give a they give a talk on food banks, and they framed it in the in that in that context. They would give an example of a family who very you know fine, stable income, stable life, uh, and then I think the I think the father or the mother suffered an accident or something, and ended up losing the jobs, and then sort of ended up spiraling to poverty, and then going into food banks. And the message that they were sort of trying to convey was this is universal, and as you said, like. Um, you mentioned those people who six months ago didn't think they could be using a food bank and I think that that sort of thinking has just been so that that sense has just been so sort of widespread in this crisis and I think would you agree that there is sort of a universality in some senses to uh, absolutely coronavirus? I, th- I think that there has been some complacency about the security of our our entire economic system yeah. and like I I'm there are generations and generations of people who do not have savings um, yeah. and spend 40 to 50 to 60% of their income on rent. Um, they, ca- they can't afford to have savings, not because they have avocado and toast occasionally. <laughs> like, it's they cannot afford to have savings. So we've all been kind of complacent and just um, desensitized to how, to how actually un- unequal um, our, our system is and who it benefits um and this has really exposed that uh but yeah it is it is universal in terms of like i think that people are really suffering it may not necessarily be in financial um in, in financial distress but emotional distress as well another thing that we do is we make sure that we're reaching out to people um 
in in our local area to make sure that loneliness isn't um, exacerbated and that people can have someone to speak to if they are struggling with their mental health. Unfortunately and tragically, a um, an older member of our community um, passed away through mm-hmm. suicide during this during lockdown. So it's just making sure that um, everyone feels safe um, physically, mentally, and are fed um, and under. Under our current economic system, that's more difficult. Mm. And um, with with an with an eye to the future, almost, do you foresee do, do you foresee your work now continuing for quite a while? Um, do you do you think that do you think that that kind of universality that we talked about is going to maybe foster in the long term more positive political results with more people realizing the need for the state to be providing these institutions rather than charitable voluntary led it's going to go in two directions Mm. um and like i think a lot of people have alluded to this in the past like the 2012 olympics where Mm. everyone like in the uk i wasn't living in the uk at the time but Mm. i've heard that in the uk there was this whole sense of community and pride and and then it just kind of completely um, evaporated um over after the Olympics. And I mm. think it's a matter of making sure that we keep the discourse um, kind of tethered to these problems that are recurring of kind of economic injustice, um, housing injustice, health injustice, and and that justice argument. Um, and I, I hope, I really hope it does. For me, in terms of my own activism, the longevity of it, to be honest, like I have no clue. I'm a student. My last student loan came in um, a couple of weeks ago. Mm. And can I afford to just keep doing this activism? I, geez, like I probably will <laughs> do even if I can afford it. But like, ultimately, like it is, it is a massive privilege to have the time and the financial security to be able to support people. And it doesn't, it doesn't pay. And it's in, I don't have savings to lean on to sustain myself. So it is, um, and I'll, I'll, like I said, like I probably do it anyway. And I have no doubt that I can't stop myself from doing it because I really enjoy it and the people <laughs> are amazing. But it, again, it's a privilege and those funds kind of, de- deplete to be that privilege depletes and mm. um, and uh, our biggest fear actually is when covid or uh, when covid kind of starts to wind down um mm. and the like the infection rate lowers is that actually the recession that's incoming whether we'll still have that community um the response from people being so generous um and whether we'll be able to foster that um i'm not sure for now and i think it takes people making it very clear that these are all linked to back to political questions Mm. and political choices um to be able to make sure that people stay angry and stay organized And thus concludes another episode of the Social Review Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to both Andy and Kirsten for coming on and talking about two very different things about uh, Basadas and um, revolutionary socialism, apocalypse, communism across history and uh, activism and food banks at the end. It's been a while since we've done a podcast with two 
different segments, but I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. If you'd like to read our review of I Want to Believe, then it's on the Social Review website, uh, as mentioned at the beginning, and you can go check that out. Uh, and similarly, as Andy said at the end, if you want to uh, buy the book, then go do uh, do go and do so. It's available at Pluto Press. Uh, my copy arrived yesterday morning, and I'm really excited to start reading it. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening. Uh, we're going to be having some more episodes coming out over the next week, couple of days, so do listen out for those. And as ever, if you enjoyed listening, then please do uh, give us a positive rating on the podcast app of your choice. Thanks again. Have a good rest of your day. Stay safe. Bye-bye.